sofas, recliners, love seats. Everything is better in leather. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley, where bold meets durable. And wait a minute, who's been finger painting on the couch again? That's okay. Leather is easy to clean. The new leather collection at Ashley is built with the durability you need for the whole family. Yes, pets too. Luxury is meant to be livable. Shop chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home. For over 130 years, McCormick has helped you make mom's lasagna. To keep her secret recipe alive. Take over taco night. No matter how chaotic your day is. Conquer the bake sale. Even if you get to it last minute. And craft the perfect Sunday brunch. When it's not even Sunday. Because with McCormick by your side, it's going to be great. Most of us have the best intentions to eat better, cut back on takeout, spend more time with your family. And then real life happens. This happens all the time with me and my husband. Um, we take out is our weakness. Uh, it's just so easy. Although we've had meal service delivery uh, in the past, and it is really like, okay, if we just put like 20 more minutes into this rather than, you know, call for takeout, then we will have created a much better meal. Gobble actually makes it even easier. 15-minute meal prep. There is absolutely no excuse for takeout if you use Gobble. It is the meal prep delivery service designed for real life. You get an easy and delicious way to create a healthy meal for you and your busy family. With Gobble, no matter how crazy your schedule is, you can still get that dinner on the table. Again, it's only 15 minutes. There's no planning, no shopping, no prepping. Gobble is your sous chef that does all the time-consuming, nitty-gritty stuff for you. They pick out the highest quality ingredients, take care of the peeling, the chopping, the marinating, and creating the perfect sauces. You have an extensive choice of meals to pick from, including low-carb, vegetarian, gluten-free, and dairy-free. The kit is delivered to your doorstep and and also they do this thing, it's not in the ad, um, that everything is bagged together for each meal so that you can just like pull the bag out of the refrigerator. You don't even have to like hunt for each individual piece. Then it only takes one pan as well. So it's just like incredibly easy. Again, there's absolutely no excuse to get takeout. And again, my listeners will get a fantastic deal on this incredibly easy meal prep kit. Six meals for just $36 plus free shipping. That is dinner for two for three nights for just $36. I don't know about you. I know where you live, but that would not buy a lot of takeout. And for $36, you will get three meals for two people, $36. It's only available at my special URL. So go to gobble.com slash friends. Again, that's gobble.com slash friends. Hi, I'm Anna Marie Cox, and welcome to With Friends Like These, the show where we talk about the differences between us without letting them divide us. It's a very personal-themed episode of With Friends Like These this week. It's sort of a an examination of, of what we think about on Valentine's Day, um, our relationships to men and why we have them. One of our stories comes from Amy Chozik, who is a writer at large for The New York Times, and we revisit her recent profile about Lorena Bobbitt and kind of talk about what we got wrong and what we can learn from it. 
But first up, an appetizer, if you will. I'm going to talk to Blythe Roberson, who is the author of How to Date Men When You Hate Men. She is a contributor to The New Yorker and The Onion. She is hilarious. Hopefully that'll get you like good and, and warmed up for something a little more serious. So first up, Blythe Roberson. Blythe, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I am excited to talk to you. I, I feel like uh, we might have a lot in common. Um, <laughs> I, too, hate men, but I'm married to one. That is the difference. Yeah. Uh, it, it, so it's an ongoing battle. <laughs> um, and also, I, too, love the movie National Treasure. Really? So, <laughs> yes. Oh, my God. I have, you are one of the only people I've ever met who has said that. <laughs> it is true. And also— um, Maybe this is like a whole like sidebar, but it was one of the movies that my ex-husband and I had in common that was like oh. part of our little like uh, inside joke language. And I confess one of the only things I miss about being married to my first husband is like having that set of inside jokes. Oh, like, totally. One of them being the quote from National Treasure, which I'm sorry, everyone who doesn't know this movie by heart, but um, this dollar bill is trying to tell me something. <laughs> So good. It's so good. I, uh, yeah, that's. I have a bit in my book about missing someone only when the new season of The Leftovers came on, and I was yeah. like, "Who am I going to talk to about this?" Yeah, it's real. <laughs> so, but but so here's the thing, though. So, I your your book is is hilarious. It has a, a lot of insights about today's dating scene that were relevant even to me, an old person. <laughs> Um, because I, I identify with this problem that a lot of people, I think, are having these days, which is like we are aware of the systems that oppress us, and yet we have to participate in them, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. So how do you proceed? Um, my favorite sort of, the, the, to me, the, the sort of section that kind of summarizes this problem, I'm going to read your own book to you here. <laughs> oh, God. Okay. Um, women attracted to men have to selectively ignore the fact that their partner benefits from a culture that oppresses women and that he probably actively participates in that culture in many ways. If you refuse to date every man who doesn't want to hear about how Pablo Picasso treated the women in his life or who thinks the wage gap comes from lifestyle choices or who thinks all your complaints about sexism can be tedious, there might not be anyone left to date. So in practice, when a man who is otherwise a good, hot ally is dismissive of a feminist point or makes a joke that is kind of fucked up, you file in your head to try and change him later and remind yourself that, la, 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 he is tall and good looking with kids. Yeah. So I'm guessing this is based on some experience. Yeah. I mean, oh, God. It's like, I mean, I write this in the intro, I think, that there— and I'm not the first person to say something like this, but when Me Too was starting, when like the Weinstein stuff was happening, there was a lot of categorizing certain men as like one of the good ones. Mm -hmm. But that's, you know, uh, missing the point because it's not like only some men, you know, learned that it was okay to treat women this way. We live in a culture that teaches all men and all women that this is the way that, you know— men and women shouldn't interact. So even, you know, men that, like, I wouldn't hang out with guys if I knew from the start that they were total jerks. I just, you know, figure out who those men are and then I avoid them. Uh, but even the men who, you know, voted for Hillary, who um, are allies, like, will even do stuff that is so annoying to me. And I'm just like, okay, I guess I will deal with that later. <laughs> you described my marriage. Okay, so. Because <laughs> I actually, I, the, again, I, 
part of me as I was like putting together my notes to talk to you, I was like, I think I'm having around just as an excuse to talk about my marriage. Um, <laughs> because as I mentioned, so I was married to, to a dude previously who I agreed, he and I were on the same page about everything, like politically and aesthetically, just agreed on all of it. And we're divorced mm-hmm. now. <laughs> yeah. And my current husband, current, probably forever, but, you know, also today. Mm-hmm. Um, he and I have very different tastes in a lot of different things. And also he was, like, raised a Republican. Ooh. Yeah, I know. But I'm in love with him. So Is he currently a Republican? No, he's not. Okay, th- thank God. And people always ask, like, so what did I do? And unfortunately, like, the trick is that he was always a good guy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but— You sort of addressed this in the introduction, but I feel like I need to press you on it, which is that Mm -hmm. although your book is entitled How to Date Men When You Hate Men, there is not like a lot of concrete advice. Yeah, this is definitely very true. Uh, Yeah, I had to go with that title. It's so good. It's so catchy. But I, especially when I was writing this book, I finished it about a year ago in like May 2018. I uh, was still very bad at dating. All men kind of hate me. No one's really trying to bang the door down to, <laughs> I don't know, marry me. So uh, I'm not really very qualified to give, <laughs> you know, love and dating advice. I don't know who would be other than a very old married couple. But then, even then it's like, but you don't understand <laughs> Bumble. Uh, and yeah, I also was like, when I was thinking about writing this book, I thought there are so many advice books by women. Women are, you know, meant to give really discreet, actionable uh, plans, I guess. Whereas men get to be like, oh, I've been thinking about all these giant problems with the world and I don't have any, you know, ways to fix them, but here you go. Bye. Um, So it's definitely more of the latter. It's more of like, here are all the things that I've noticed. I'm trying to figure them out. I haven't really figured them out yet. Um, And something also I've been asked a lot on while I've been doing press for the book about like, what are your tips? Like what, yeah. what's your tip for women who are dating? And I was like, <laughs> I don't, I don't know. And then I realized it's kind of like, um, I think people are kind of looking for, you know, that Sheryl Sandberg-esque, like what, how an individual woman can like through her own personal will and like privilege overturn a system that, you know, has been in place for thousands of years. Like if you talk at more meetings, you can, you know, beat white supremacist capitalism. Uh, And I'm not, you know, convinced that women (laughs) can fix dating and patriarchy by sheer force of will, but which is all to just obfuscate the... uh, reality that I don't really have any dating tips. Oh, no, I think that 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 answer actually is pretty illuminating because it's something you touch on in the book, too, which is that the whole kind of romance industry is designed to keep us thinking about romance and not patriarchy. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) We actually before we go further, I really want to be clear because you do a wonderful job of setting this up in the intro, which is that we're not talking about all women. Or all men. Exactly. You and I are, yeah. you do a great job of foregrounding something that gets assumed a lot of the time when white people talk to white people, right? Yes, exactly. I uh, write, come right on in the intro and I'm like, I am writing largely from my own experiences as a white, cis, straight, you know, upper middle class, uh, well-educated, able-bodied 
woman, you know, like I am writing about, you know, men who are educated, white, cis, straight, who have all the privilege in the world. But while like obviously patriarchy and uh, gendered oppression is a huge thing, like I have almost all the privilege in the world, right? Like I am definitely, while I'm dealing with problems you know, based on men having all this, uh, like, power that women don't have, I have never, like, the sexual sexualization of, you know, Black women is way, way egregiously worse and has such a, like, horrible, violent history that it doesn't for white women. And, you know, I have never had to hide my sexual orientation in the way that queer people do. And just, like, I, the set of, you know, problems that I'm talking about are much smaller than they would be otherwise. They are, but I, I think there's a couple of reasons why I think it's still worth talking about. But in, in fact, you wrote a book about it that I read and still find <laughs> worth reading and hopefully, obviously, people will buy it. Um, one is the, again, the romance industry, big romance, big love, let's call yeah. it. Does this thing where it keeps all of us, including straight, white, upper middle class, able-bodied women, kind of like trapped despite all of our privilege? We don't use our we, – we are, we are kind of forced to squander our privilege, like fritter it away while we try to find a dude. Um, and the other thing – and this may be controversial, but I think it's true, which is that there is this larger problem of, of what you do when you're woke – um, when you start to recognize that you you exist in a system of oppression, whether that's mm-hmm. at the highest you know apex level or just somewhere towards the bottom, how do you continue to participate in it without replicating it? Totally, yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I know there's no one answer to that, right? Like, and that's sort of what you're saying when you say you don't have dating tips. Exactly, yeah. Like life is trying to figure out <laughs> how to answer those. <laughs> And yet I feel like as a as a show, this is sort of like weird, like a a, a bizarro Valentine's uh, week show. Mm -hmm. I feel like we I do want to kind of dig into it a little bit. So totally with foregrounding. This is about that this conversation starts with two straight white ladies talking to each other. Um, I wonder if we can dig in and talk about what what there is to learn from this experience. Like, so you you knew what you were getting into when you wrote this book. Like, you knew you were not actually qualified to write it, I guess is what you're saying. Um, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but in thinking through these things and having to examine, like, your place in the big love system, it, your, your history um, it, within the context of patriarchy, like, did you come out on the other side with some different ideas or new thoughts? Oh, yeah, totally. Well, I mean, when I was writing, when I was thinking about writing this book, I knew that I was going to write a book about love and dating um, because that was the kind of stuff, whenever I would write a comedy piece about dating, people just resonated. Uh, It resonated with them so much more than when I would write about, I don't know, like sharks farting is like the Tina Fey example of what men like to write uh, comedy (laughs) about. Um, and it makes sense because dating like has stakes. It's something that most people experience. People really care about. It's stressful. Um, 
so that was the kind of writing that, you know, made people interested in buying a book from me. And I knew that would be the area that I would write about. Because um, I really want to write about, like, <laughs> the national park system, but no one cares uh, about my trips uh, to the national parks. So I was, like, uh, thinking about how I could write this, and I was just worried that I was somehow like participating in my own oppression by focusing on dating when it seems that women are supposed to want to focus on dating and so much um, of like online uh, journalism like rewards women for writing in the first person about love and like anxiety disorders. Uh, And I was like, oh God, am I being frivolous? Am I wasting my, you know, education? Am I wasting all the times I've ever read long articles about politics? But then as I thought about love and dating from a feminist perspective for the two years it took me to write the proposal and write the book, I was like, oh, this like actually is so important. So just to even be able to consider this topic important was a huge revelation for me, which is maybe obvious, but for me it took a long time to get around to. Um, So that was a huge thing. I'm trying to think of other, there were smaller things where I just realized, uh, I realized while writing this book that all the times men had said to me things like, oh, I could never be with a woman who is more successful than I am or a woman who's funnier than I am. I always took those as like them telling me that they personally didn't want to date me because I was like a ambitious gremlin. But then I realized, (laughs) oh, like that's sexism. Like that's legit straight up sexism. (laughs) Like that's not cool. Uh, Which was one of those. And again, all those men were like Democrats who are like liberal work and entertainment um, who don't realize that they're being sexist. And I didn't even, I who think everything is, comes down to patriarchy, didn't realize that was a sexist thing until I was sitting in my room alone thinking about dating for, you know, hours a day. Uh, yeah, so it was, it was big and it was small revelations. If you have been listening to this show for a while, you know that FrameBridge isn't just a sponsor. I am genuinely an enormous fan. And I have a new FrameBridge story for you, which is that I was kind of re like decorating my office for the new year, kind of like picking out some books to, to take to Goodwill, cleaning out some shelves. Um, and I decided to organize some of the photos I have into groupings of like, this is me with my friends, this is me with my husband, and this is me with my family. And I realized in my family, family section, I didn't have any pictures of me with my in-laws, who are also my family. In fact, they're, I, I love them very much. So I realized I did have a lot of pictures of us together on my phone, and I realized I could pretty easily just, you know, get some things to put on my shelf if I went to FrameBridge. So I did. I uh, did it on my computer, not on my phone, but I uploaded my Instagram and I found some cute pictures of me with my in-laws and me and my husband with my in-laws. One of them is at the Villanova uh, Championship a few years ago. Very happy picture. Who would not want to memorialize that? I can't believe I didn't get a FrameBridge of that when it happened, but, but now I have it. It is on the shelf. And you can do this too. If you realize, for instance, you have tons of pictures of a lot of different things, but you're missing like a a picture of you with your pet, 
for instance, or you're missing a picture of you, again, maybe with your in-laws who are also your family. A FrameBridge makes it really easy to fill that gap. Go to framebridge.com and upload your photo, or again, you can also just kind of uh, sync it with your Instagram feed. They will also do like a real photo or whatever it is you need to get framed. You can preview your item online in any frame style, choose your favorite, or get free recommendations from their talented designers. The expert team at FrameBridge will custom frame your item and deliver your finished piece directly to your door, ready to hang. Or in my case, I, I actually just have it setting on a shelf. Instead of all the hundreds you pay at a framing store, their prices start at $39 and all the shipping is free. Plus, my listeners will get 15% off their first order at framebridge.com when they use offer code FRIENDS. So fill that gap. You know, if there's someone in your life that you love and you are not reminded of their happy face every day, do something about it. Framebridge.com, offer code FRIENDS. So I will tell you how I know about Rothy's. This is an honest-to-God true story, which is that they advertise all the time on Instagram. So I, they're like that pug life harness you see all the time, too. Like, it's just an, a consumer product that I knew existed because it was in my feed all the time. And I think I tweeted something like, does everyone else see this feed? You know, see this, see this shoe on their Instagram feed every day? And I got responses, including, I don't want to use any names, but let's just say they are people that you would recognize— and who uh, know these shoes are comfortable because they participate in lots of marches. Uh, I take their word for it. Like, I, that is the biggest kind of endorsement I think you can have. Like, someone who's a professional activist endorsing a shoe. <laughs> so that is why I decided to try them. You should try them as well. They're incredibly comfortable. They have a few different silhouettes. There's the flat, the point, the loafer, the sneaker. They make shoes for women and girls. They have a color and pattern selection that is incredibly wide. They have zebra, they have camo, they have bright colors, they have neutrals, and they're always updating their lineup. They launch new colors every few weeks and always sell out. And so you you sure to check if you don't like what they have, although it's a wide variety, check back in a couple weeks. They may have something else that you like. But I would encourage you to buy a pair and try them out in some shade that you know you're going to use because you'll wear them all the time. And this is the really cool thing about them. Not only are they super comfortable, you can throw them in the wash. So get a color that's a light color. Like, I don't know about you, but I'm always afraid to buy shoes that are like yellow or white or light beige because... I live in Minneapolis, <laughs> and um, the days uh, that are sunny are perfectly nice, uh, but in the spring, let's say, the sidewalks are not uh, easy to traverse without getting something on your shoes. So it is really great to be able to throw them in the wash. Um, I bet there's some marches coming up that I'll want to have some some fresh shoes for those as well. And as an added bonus, they're also made from recycled water bottles. They are still super, super soft, um, but they uh, don't have a high carbon footprint. So they're comfy. They They do something good for the environment. And you're gonna like the way they look as well. So I love my Rothy's. I know you'll like them too. They also right now have an amazing deal for my listeners. Use the code WFLT to get free shipping with no minimum order. Again, that's code WFLT for free shipping with no minimum. Free shipping, free returns, exchanges on those shoes, but you won't return them, I don't think. Go to rothys.com and enter WFLT. L-T, to get your favorite new flats and free shipping. It's a no-brainer. Shoes that are comfortable, stylish, and sustainable, and free shipping. Get yourself a pair today. Go to rothys.com, promo code WFLT.
Journalist Mehdi Hassan is known around the world for his televised takedowns of presidents and prime ministers. He hosts Upfront on Al Jazeera and is a columnist for The Intercept. And in his new podcast, Deconstructed, Mehdi unpacks a game-changing news event of the week while challenging the conventional wisdom in a tight 30-minute package, a little quicker than what we do here. He starts his show with his take on one topic and what the mainstream news is getting wrong or what context is being missed. And then he goes into a deep analysis and conversation with his guest or guests of the week. And get this, his guests have included Judd Apatow, Bernie Sanders, and Hassan Minhaj. So he kind of covers the gamut, I would say, in terms of who you might be expecting. Um, It's everyone from comedians to politicians to, for instance, Stefan Clark's fiance. So you're going to hear from a lot of different people. And the show has covered such topics as the violence in Gaza from the perspective of Israeli activists against the occupation and, of course, police shootings, as through the eyes of the fiancé of Stephon Clark. Also, he's talked about the dangers of John Bolton with former diplomats. As a Brit and a Muslim, an immigrant based in Donald Trump's Washington, D.C., Mehdi Hassan gives a refreshingly provocative perspective on the ups and downs of American and global politics. Deconstructed is a show that cuts through political drivel and media misinformation to give you a straight take on one big news story of the week. It is out every Friday, just like this pod. You can listen and subscribe at theintercept.com slash deconstructed or on any podcast platform. I actually had a thought when that that section about the professionally insecure woke white boys where you talk about guys who say dismissive things like that, like they couldn't date. It sounds sort of like almost like they're being self-deprecating, but it's actually really revealing. Like I couldn't date a woman making more than me. I couldn't date a woman funnier than me, whatever. It did remind me of my marriage. (laughs) Uh And like the advantage that I have of like being with somebody who just I straight up disagree with on things. You know, mm-hmm. like, I feel like my experience with John is that he says some stuff that I don't like all like pretty regularly because he's still kind of in the process of figuring out his post awakening politics. Right. Mm-hmm. Like he figured out he wasn't a Republican and he's kind of like feeling his way towards what what kind of not a Republican is he? Yeah. When did he figure out that he's not a Republican? Oh, during the uh, uh, 2016 primaries. Oh, okay. Yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> he He's basically like a never Trumper, but that what happened with him is something that didn't happen with a lot of never Trump people, which is that realizing that Trump was the choice of the party that he, he used to call home set off a kind of like d- domino effect of... yeah oh, wait, like maybe there's a lot of other stuff I haven't really thought about, you know, systemic oppression-wise. That's fascinating. Yeah, my dad is on that journey too. Oh, interesting. So maybe this is actually, maybe there's something we can sort of find a parallel here because like what I find with John is that he'll still say shit that's like straight up, I don't want to repeat kind of gross. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. But I also know he's on this journey, and I've, like, seen right. him change his mind. Yeah. So. I've almost found that, like, when my dad says something that's sexist or messed up, he, and if we point it out to him, he might be slow to getting around to agreeing with, like, 
my brother and myself, but he'll listen. Um, he's like, because he is having such a big, like he was Republican forever when we point out like, hey, I know you were like raised in the South, but we should really not have a painting of Confederate soldiers in our house. Um, he'll be like, no, but it's worth, it's so nice. It's such a nice painting. It's worth money, but he'll like listen to us. Whereas when I pointed out to a guy who told me recently he couldn't date someone funnier than him, when I was like, I think there might be, you know, sociological reasons behind you saying that, he gets so defensive because he identifies as like a woke ally that yeah. he can't see himself as anything but that. Yeah, that's, I think that's, that's a really good, parallel and insight because I I think like with John, he definitely gets defensive if he kind of casually says something sexist or quite frankly, you know, racist, but not like in the, let's say playing on racial tropes because it's not like he's saying I hate a certain kind of person, but it's more like he'll, he'll draw on a stereotype of some kind. Yeah. And I'll point it out and he'll kind of be like, he'll get a little defensive about it. But there's also this pattern that I that I see that's developed in the past three years, which is that he'll get defensive about it. And then maybe like a month later, like we'll be talking about something related to it and he'll I'll realize that he's changed his mind. Ah, yeah, (laughs) (laughs) that's great. I mean, it is this remarkable leap of faith, though, for me. And I've realized like that's sort of how I know we love each other. Well, and this is how I'm going to reply it to your dad, too. And I think in a lot of other situations where you see people evolve in, in ideology is it takes place within the relationship of unconditional love. Yeah. Like, if John thought that I might break up with him for his ideas and opinions, I think he would be far less interested in changing them. Yeah. That's really, huh. I'm trying to think how we can harness unconditional love for <laughs> fix patriarchy. <laughs> I think that it has to be a part of it, but it's also true. But these yeah. are different situations, too. So I think, like, the relationship with your dad, obviously, hopefully, takes place in a context of unconditional love, right? Yeah, exactly. Like, you know you're going to all be in this relationship with to get together no matter what, and that makes it possible to rethink things. And. And then on the other hand, if you're just dating somebody, then, you know, sometimes it's okay to like, you know, pull, pull the escape hatch, right? Like, (laughs) right, exactly. Like if you you ever, when you were starting to date your husband, were you like, I I can't, the opinions are just too different. Or were you always like, ah. So regular listeners will know the answer to this question. (laughs) 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 But so I feel we we, have to do like a whole episode on it sometime. I keep promising to, which is that he and I met in the 12-step program. So what I always point out is that we knew each other's deepest, darkest secrets, but not how we voted. Oh, wow. Yeah. So we were already kind of halfway to being in love by the time Mm -hmm. we figured out we had these ideological differences. So I recommend that. (laughs) I realize it's really hard to replicate. Um, And in general, you shouldn't also start dating your first year sober. So don't do that. But um, (laughs) we did. And it did mean that, like, I knew who he was on this really deep level. When we started dating, like I knew his most like intimate fears and um, what he felt guilt and shame about. And I knew what he was proud of and I knew the person he wanted to be. Right. Mm -hmm. And he knew those same things about me. So when I (laughs) really 
just, <laughs> and it was actually like, it was a kind of one, like he read something that I'd written and I guess he sort of knew intellectually that I was a flaming liberal, but he'd never, again, in the context of like dating me, read something that I had written that was like viciously mean to Republicans. Mm-hmm. And so he read a column that I'd written and he just like, it was bad. <laughs> it was, really? It was bad. Oh, no. How far into dating you was this that he read this uh, article? We had been together for, we had been dating for like three or four months. Oh, wow. And yeah. did did he think about breaking up? I, what's funny is I actually never asked him that. Um, he just was mad, you know? Wow. Yeah. He was just mad because he was, his, and this is actually sort of, it's a personal story that I think points at something larger, which is that he took it really personally that I was like writing critically about like fat cat Republicans. Mm-hmm. Like he took that as like a direct assault on him, which wow. I mean, maybe that's an insight, but it's also not what I was trying to do. <laughs> <laughs> Um, huh. Yeah. So, I mean, and again, so actually it goes back to this idea that like we only were able to, we had to stop talking about politics for a while. And then we're only able to start talking about politics again once we kind of decided, all right, we want this relationship to work. Right. And it, it wasn't yet to the point of like unconditional forever love because we just hadn't gotten that far. Mm-hmm. But it was, we're not in a trial stage here. Like we've we've gone past the warranty. Like, yeah, yeah, which which all of this kind of circles back to like when people are like, what's your life? What's your advice for, you know, dating and patriarchy? And it's like I've been saying, like, just, you know, be if you if people do effed up stuff to you, just tell them in the moment, like Mm -hmm. it's better to just in the moment be like, hey, I don't appreciate you saying this thing about, you know, I'll go back to the example of not being able to date someone funnier than you. But really that, you know, it doesn't really work. Like it makes you feel better and maybe gets them thinking, but I really don't feel like that's the way to fix dating and patriarchy. I feel like it's really got to do with, like, as you said, unconditional love, like being raised in a way that you hopefully are not taught that that's okay. Um, Being, you know, seeing models of love that are more equal. Um, And then also, I think it comes down to pop culture, like Mm -hmm. the narratives that we read and we see, um, I feel like are such a huge influence, obviously, on how people love and how they decide what is socially okay. So that's what, like, I don't know if I'll ever have kids, but I'm trying, I'm like, oh, this can be like a plausible goal of like being a writer is to create narratives of love and make rom-coms that are really funny and really enjoyable, but also less egregiously sexist than those we've seen in the past. (laughs) That sounds like an achievable goal, but yet no one's really done it. So, (laughs) yeah. uh, I was thinking about that because you do talk about rom-coms and about models of romance and how fucked up a lot of our most popular, you know, rom-com movies are including You Got yeah. Mail, which you're right. Like, it's evil movie. Yeah. Um, uh, and I, it occurred to me, I was like, so what are some good models? Like, what are, what, what, when have I seen a couple on screen that is, like, n- completely unproblematic? Do you know who I, I thought know. of? Who? Marge Gunderson. Um, is that Fargo? Yeah, the no. movie Fargo. Ah, I have very shamefully, I, like, 
found the movie Fargo boring. Uh, so that's I'm not okay. Very familiar with it, but 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 perhaps you remember in that movie she's a she's a sheriff, right? Mm-hmm. She has a lot of power, and her husband paints um, ducks for stamps. Oh, <laughs> and he just wishes her well <laughs> in the morning, and he shows yeah. her his work, and he makes eggs for her, and is clearly just like supportive of her career, which I'm guessing probably is more remunerative than his, you know, mm-hmm. and definitely mm-hmm. carries all the markers of male power. She carries a gun, literally, right? Right, right. But it's just like this sweet little supportive relationship. Ah, I love that. <laughs> <laughs> you should definitely, that should be an article, the feminism of Fargo. Well, it's just, but, but, it, but it occurred to me, like, the, the reason why you don't see the rom-coms is because rom-coms have to, you have to have, like, a fucked up relationship, right? Or else there's no right, exactly. comedy. So, I mean, yeah, I, I doff my cap to you as far as maybe being able to make a rom-com about a steady, healthy relationship. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Or even just, like, the way that courtship is depicted I don't know like it just doesn't have to be like I go back to You've Got Mail because I watched it so many times growing up I feel like it was one of three movies my mom owned um but yeah Tom Hanks is just so mean to Meg Ryan the whole movie and it she's not really that I mean the thing she's like my character trait is I'm not mean and I wish I could be mean Mm. but it's just like I think you can show a courtship that is you know sexy and interesting that doesn't involve two people being so mean to one another. Because since I had that realization, I've just stopped, A, being mean to other people, and B, when other people are mean to me, I just say, like, I know you were joking, but that was really mean, and you can't, you're not allowed to say things like that to me. And it works. Like, people are just nice to me now, and my life is so much easier. (laughs) It's great. Yeah. Well, I think that brings us around to something, your insight, to the extent like you have advice, right, which is that when people are mean to you, say something in a relationship yeah. too. And I do think that that we're circling around the unconditional love aspect, which is that if you are if some if you're in a dating context or flirtation and someone says something mean or says something offensive and you yeah. object to it in real time and they get huffy, well, then better off you didn't go any further. Exactly. Yeah. It's <laughs> like... This I feel like maybe I say something like this in my book, or maybe I just have been thinking about it. But I think women are one of the ways that, you know, we're kind of socialized to care about love so much that eventually we, you know, in the olden days would, you know, consent to get married back when it was way more imbalanced than it was. And like you were basically like you had no property rights, you had uh, no access to education. It was just, you know, uh, no one would willingly really become a man's maid and nanny and therapist for their whole life for free. Um, One of the ways that we kind of uh, swindled women into wanting to do this is by making us feel personally demeaned by that anytime anyone wasn't interested in us. And it's kind of like it goes along with the beauty myth of like when women are gaining more societal power, society tells them that they have to meet this a standard of beauty that's totally divorced from any reality. So we have to spend all our time thinking about it. And then if someone thinks we're not hot, it means that we are a lesser person. We're like worth less. So for a long time, I was just like, even guys that sucked, I was like so sad if they didn't like me, if I got rejected by them. And now I'm like, 
who literally who cares? Like that person blows. I don't <laughs> care if they like me. Like it really, uh, Heather Haverleski, the advice columnist, asked Polly. Friend of the pod. Um, really? Friend yeah. of the pod? I'm obsessed with her, as is everyone my age, I think. Oh, well, she um, like, well, we're very good friends and we worked together for like 20 years ago, but. Oh my God. She's uh, awesome. And I thought of her I'm a lot reading her book, actually. Really? Mm-hmm. Oh my God. A high compliment. She uh, had this column that I think about all the time uh, where someone wrote into her asking, you know, oh, God, dating's so hard. Basically, how do I deal with it? And she was like, dating is like working your way through a pool of 200 tepid men. And you really only have to get one, but it means you have to get rejected by 199. And I'm just like, yeah, if someone is so rude or like has bad opinions, like I don't like great one out of the 199 in the trash, you know, mm-hmm. like it doesn't mean that I'm less because there's someone out there who thinks that I'm not fuckable, you know. And eventually you'll get to a point where you're like, thank God that person rejected me. Like, yeah, you know, I'm, I would have wasted so much time. Like if I had gotten involved in that with that person, like, yeah, again, as an old married person, <laughs> a once divorced old married person, I can tell you that that is that is, in fact, a realization that you get to, which is that, like, okay. I am so glad all of those terrible relationships didn't work. I mean, we're yeah. in the middle of them. It's it's hard, obviously. And that's not just like big romance, big love, you know, capitalism and patriarchy. It's just I think it's human. You yeah. Know? Like we want to be accepted what's different and what's the socialization part and capitalism and patriarchy and white supremacy and all that is the ways that women blame ourselves for Mm. our rejection yeah totally where it's like how do i and this same column she was like i think floating the idea the woman asking the question of like sending us like surveying the men who had rejected her like what did i do wrong how did i fix (laughs) and that's definitely an impulse i was like oh i've like There was a point in time where I was like, oh, I want to write a book where I just road trip around the country. It was just an excuse to go on a road trip. But I was like, I road trip around the country and I interview all the men who's like ever rejected me and then make out with them, hopefully. And then I read that column and I was like, why do I care so much what these men who rejected me think? Like, sure, in a sense, we're all trying to become better people. Like, we're trying to become kinder and, you know, gentler and more loving, I hope. But I, but those men particularly have nothing to tell me. You know, it's like the people who already love me. Those are the ones that who have something to tell me about how to be a better person. And like, why should I care about a guy in seventh grade who, you know, didn't want to date me? Also, I mean, have you seen High Fidelity? Because that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, it, I mean, it is. Although that is an interesting movie. I, it would be you should pitch a gender swept High Fidelity. Like, yeah, that could work. Um, But I was thinking about, I kind of want to turn back before we wrap up to this idea that if if the insights that we have based on the experience of these two straight white ladies, able-bodied, well-off, all the all the all the centered things that you and I represent, like, are there things that we can learn from this conversation that might be we can extrapolate to the general problem of participating in a system of oppression without replicating it. Mm. Yeah, let's see. <laughs> and I would be careful because, like, we are not the best ones, maybe, to judge. Yeah, exactly. I uh, 
yeah, I don't want to speak for like for anyone else, but I did just read um, Rebecca Traster's book, Good mm-hmm. and Mad, and she, uh, in her conclusion, says something to the effect of like, pay attention to your anger, pay attention to you know when other people are making you angry, and try to pay attention to the ways in which you might be the cause of someone else's anger. So. I think that's like kind of, this is so general, it's almost not worth saying, but it's just like, I don't really think I can oppress, you know, men in my dating. I think that like, they've pretty much got that handled for me. But, you know, just in the same way that I like hope men listen when I say I am a woman and I have experienced a certain thing. And I think that what you are, even though I care about you a lot as a person, I think what you just said is fucked up. Like, and I hope that they would, not immediately fight with me and try to defend themselves. Like that's, you know, on the whole, what I would hope I and other people learn from this book is just like, this is my lived experience. I'm a woman. It's real. When other people tell you their lived experience, just try not to fight. Try to just noodle on it, you know, try to listen. And I think further than that, like your general advice, yeah, so when people of color or people who are disabled or people who aren't centered tell us something that's critical, right? Mm-hmm. We listen. That's what you point out. Um, we sh- we try not to get defensive. And also, I-, I guess the other thing to add is that we need to remember that this relationship can exist in a context of, I'll go ahead and say, unconditional love or at least acceptance, and that we can be the one to start that. Exactly. Like, we can yeah. be the one to decide, I'm not just going to listen. I'm not just going to not be defensive, but I'm going to try and see what this person wants and see if we can create a mutually, you know, it sounds weird to say like mutually beneficial relationship, but you can have a relationship with that person. They've cared enough to tell you what's something that bothers them. Exactly. Yeah. And it's like at the end of the day, you know, patriarchy is going to exist long after either of us dies. Like well. it's a... <laughs> It's a work of generations, sadly. That's not my plan, but okay. <laughs> I know. Yeah. And it's just like, you know, this is the world we got. We're all dogs doing our best. You know, just because we, unfortunately for men and women, like live in this society that is set up in such a demeaning way for over half the population, like we do love one another. And it's just, we're all working through it together and we're all in this battle together, men included. So we just got to try. <laughs> <laughs> so sad. And on Sobbing. that like resounding note of optimism, this has been great. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Postage rates have gone up again. Now, I continue to believe that uh, U.S. postage is one of the best deals in democracy. That, that is a service that we usually take for granted. So it's still pretty cheap, especially compared to private services and also compared to the rest of the world. But more expensive than it used to be. But Stamps.com has discounts on all postage retail rates. With Stamps.com, you can save five cents off of every first-class stamp and up to 40% off priority mail. That kind of savings really adds up, especially if you are a small business. I am a small business. And Stamps.com is completely online, which saves you time. There is no more trips to the post office because, you know, we are we are through with Christmas season. We are now in officially return season. In fact, one of the things that I was thinking I was going to have to do today was uh, get a return in underneath the deadline, uh, which if you're doing your math, it's like a six weeks. Yep. Six weeks since Christmas. That's 
today. <laughs> but I don't have to go to the post office. I can use stamps.com. Stamps.com automatically calculates and prints the exact amount of postage you need for every letter or package you send. You will never overpay or underpay. Well, I guess mainly you want to emphasize overpaying. You'll never overpay again. Stamps.com brings all the services of the U.S. Postal Service right to your fingertips. They'll send you a free digital scale, which will automatically calculate that exact postage. Stamps.com will even help you decide the best class of mail based on your needs. Right now, my listeners can get a special offer that includes a four-week trial plus free postage and a digital scale. And you can see for yourself why over 700,000 small businesses use Stamps.com. Just go to Stamps.com and click on the microphone, the podcast microphone, at the top of the homepage and type in friends. That's Stamps.com. Enter friends. You know, rental cars are fine. You're going to want to use a rental car at a rental car agency at some point. They're great for business trips, I guess. But what if you're doing something that's not, you know, a traditional business trip? You are going to want to use Turo. Turo is a peer-to-peer car sharing marketplace where you can book any car you want, wherever you want it, from a community of local hosts. It's available in over 5,500 cities across the U.S., Canada, the U.K., and Germany with over 9 million users worldwide. It is way better than a rental car. You can choose the best car for you, often at a lower cost than traditional car rental agencies, and you can customize your experience for whatever your adventure demands. They have Teslas and Porsches, Mercedes-Benz, BMW, Ferrari, as well as Subaru and Toyota. I bet there's a Volvo or two. Now, you might just need like a truck on moving day. Or you might want to get a sports car for a luxurious weekend away or a vintage van for an Instagram-worthy road trip. Turo lets you pick out the perfect vehicle for your next adventure. There are more than 350,000 vehicles listed globally, and many hosts will deliver the car directly to you. There are insurance options available for every trip. So skip the rental counter with Turo. How would you go about doing this? Well, download the Turo app, that's T-U-R-O, on the App Store or from Google Play, or visit Turo.com. Again, that's T-U-R-O. Listeners to this show will get $25 off their first trip when they sign up for Turo and use the promo code FRIENDS at checkout. That's, again, you can use the Turo app, T-U-R-O, or go to Turo.com and get $25 off your first trip using the offer code FRIENDS at checkout. Terms do apply. So now that I've got you thinking about the power of unconditional love to to help people make changes, we're going to talk about Lorena Bobbitt, whose story is also in some ways about love. And I'm not making a joke. Uh, It's about how we feel about her and what's changed with us kind of as people, as Americans, as woke feminists, as media organizations, and how we view her. Amy Chozik, who was first on the show to talk about her book, Chasing Hillary, which I implore you to read, is one of the best campaign memoirs I've ever read. Amy Chozik, who is also, or still, a writer at large at the New York Times, she is our next guest. Amy, welcome back to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I admit this is not the uh, kind of story that I thought we would be talking about. When you came back to the show, although there is, I suppose, a certain thematic uh, continuity between this story and that of Hillary Clinton. But what drew you to this story? I'm curious. 
Well, it's interesting. Like, we've been reassessing. I mean, you mentioned Hillary. I listened to Slow Burn. We've been sort of reassessing all of these major flashpoints from the 90s, and they all look so different through today's prism. I mean, whether it's Tanya Harding or Monica Lewinsky, um, you know, even O.J. Simpson, uh, the documentary that really explored the racial tensions that led to his kind of creation myth. So I don't know, we've been reassessing all of these major 90s scandals. And I don't know, maybe it's because like you and I, it was like our formative years when these happened and now we're in media and we're interested. But for some reason, there's just been like a deep interest in kind of reassessing all of these things. And so uh, I heard that Jordan Peele was producing this um, documentary on Lorena Bobbitt and just kind of thought, well, what does that what does that scandal look like through today's eyes? And I basically remembered that some crazy jealous wife cut off her husband's penis. I mean, I had a very baseline, naive, uh, incomplete understanding of this of this scandal. I'll put my cards on the table about it, (laughs) which is that I again. So we're about the same age, same media environment. Um. I remember the story as some crazy lady cut off her husband's penis. And I also remember that he had it attached and went on Howard Stern and made a porn movie. Here's a detail that I'm kind of embarrassed to remember, which is that I, if you had asked me where it had taken place, I would have a hand on a stack of Bibles and told you New Jersey. <laughs> so. Wait, I think we're thinking of Joey Bonifuco and the Long Island Lolita, which was right around That is it. probably, yes, that is probably the same. Well, yes, Not that New is Jersey, probably it. but like still Long Island kind of stuff. Yeah, similar. Long Island. Yeah. But it's, it seems it's like an, it seems like a New Jersey crime. Totally. I, I'm married to a New Jerseyan, so uh, I say that with some affection. And, and I'm curious, though, so specifically, like when you started out to write this mm-hmm. story— like what were what were your kind of assumptions and uh, frameworks? So when my when it when it first came to me, like how about a story on Lorena Bobbitt? I thought, oh God, I haven't heard that name in a million years, and um, and yeah, I think I know this story. Then I I did watch the documentary before I interviewed her, and what's great about what they do in that in the documentary is that it's not it doesn't really take a side it just shows you her side which was something that nobody paid any attention to at the time um and so i watched a lot of footage of her a scared Ecuadorian immigrant without a translator, English English is her second language, explaining in graphic detail how her husband had repeatedly abused and raped her and how she had sought help, called 911, and this was right before the Violence Against Women Act passed. There was nowhere for her to go. There were no shelters. She would sleep in her car outside the nail salon. Um, And then what was really even more striking than her own testimony was the string of testimony over eight days of his friends who said that he bragged about raping his wife, Um, her clients at the nail salon who said they saw bruises on her. Uh, I mean, long story short, overwhelming evidence that this was a woman who was uh, extremely abused and under duress and really had no other options. And she was, of course, found not guilty by reason of insanity, which is something else I think people forget. When I told men I was doing the story, they just like assumed she was serving a life sentence. You know, this is the worst (laughs) thing anyone could find. How is she not in prison? You know, um, yeah. And so just watching all of that, like I went in to meet when when I by the time I met with her, I just know, wow, this woman has a story that we did not listen to or give fully listen to at the time. And when you say we, 
it's the we can say the media mm-hmm. a little bit here because even just doing a cursory kind of Google search, our memories of how it played out, I think, are pretty accurate reflection of how it played out. Mm-hmm. Um, it wasn't like there was this any really cool feminist commentary happening and and we didn't see it. Right. I mean, there was probably, but the coverage was viewed through today's eyes, pretty shockingly tilted towards sensational and depicting her as kind of crazed, like we were talking about. And even the time, I mean, God, I know you can stand up for your institution, although maybe you can also claim some historic distance. But even the Times' coverage, which I'm sure they tried to, to do from a very, like, dignified place. I'm looking at a, a story right now about her acquittal. And it these are... Um, the last couple paragraphs. Uh, Mrs. Bobbitt depicted herself as a devout, unworldly, and deeply religious Roman Catholic woman, but one who admitted to stealing dresses from Nordstrom's and money and manicuring equipment from Mrs. Busitti. Together, they made for an unusual couple, whose bitter, bruising fights were interspersed with trips to Luray Caverns and the King's Dominion Amusement Park, who engaged in consensual sex 72 hours before the amputation, even as they planned to divorce. They are like children, Mr. Ebert said in his clothing argument. Neither one plays with the whole deck. They just don't have all their spigots open. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> that's a lot to unpack there. I mean, that's one of the things that I found, I, like you did, fell into this rabbit hole of reading coverage of the period. And, you know, there's this presumption that, like, we know Howard Stern was a jerk and didn't think that he really, that wife rape is a thing. You know, we know, we kind of, like, knew the bad actors. But what was so fascinating is you look at, you know, elite media. And I think one of the worst offenders was Gay Talese writing for The New Yorker. And mm-hmm. I found this entire treatise defending the penis. And like, doesn't a penis have any rights? I mean, it's really something. <laughs> and then he says, he basically calls marital rape an oxymoron and says that everyone knows she's allowed to get a headache every once in a while. But beyond oh. that, you know, this is basically a made up term. Um So, I mean, even Ladies Home Journal, women's magazines were debating whether wife rape was a thing. Uh, the the headline in a penthouse article written by a prominent New York prosecutor was "Wife Rape?" question mark Who really gets screwed? Wow. Yeah. So I mean, That's... in some way, I feel like we made progress <laughs> as a you know as a society um, in that we can you know agree that marital rape is is a law. It, it is it is a crime in all fifty states now. It was not at the time when Lorena did this, and it was also impossible to prove in many states. Like in Virginia, where she was, she needed a witness, and they needed to be completely living apart. So oh, wow. that's that was the baseline for proving it. Um, I think you mentioned this in your story, like how yeah. recently all 50 states have come to recognize marital rape. Yeah. That uh, it's just within the past how many years? Like, So in 94, by the time her trial came around, all, it was technically Oklahoma, North Carolina were the last two states. It was technically a crime. There was no longer a marital exemption to rape, but it's still, it remains to this day, activists would tell you, probably in 10 or 12 states, almost impossible to prove. They have these requirements to prove it that are just impossible to meet. For instance, living apart or having a witness. And apparently Michael Cohen famously asserted that he didn't think it was the case. Um, Right. right. uh, In an argument that he had with a reporter about whether or not this happened between an alleged incident between the president and uh, Ivana Trump. I'm I'm, speaking of penises. Yes. uh, That is uh, uh, there's no way to not 
this is that was a rather large part of the story. Um, it is weirdly like, I mean, I guess of course it's emphasized, mm-hmm. but it, it wasn't just again not our imagination. Like, even the Times coverage is like incredibly detailed coverage of the penis. Yes. I mean, in a way, it's like the only reason we talk about the story is because of the penis. I mean, imagine if John had cut off some piece of Lorena, you know, it would be another mm. another domestic violence incident that no one ever talked about. It was like this cut at, no pun intended, cut at manhood. It really got at the war of the, the kind of gender wars erupting at the time. And it really like it, it made men terrified, like for the. So many women walk around afraid all of the time. And for the first time, it seemed like men were somewhat afraid. And, you know, women would say, uh, Lorena Bobbitt became like a verb. It was like a thing that women would use, even though she never felt the love of feminists. In fact, a lot of feminists criticized her at the time and said that she, what she did set the movement back because people are going to portray all feminists as like crazy and wanting to cut their penises off. So, uh, even that's oh god. If you go back and read some of these feminist writers and thinkers at the time, the kind of mindset among a lot of them was like this hurts the cause because men are going to portray us as all wanting to like run around with a knife and cut off their manhood. There's a, two things that bother me about it. Well, many things, I guess. <laughs> a lot. One is that, like, what the the abused wife was supposed to be thinking, like, but what will this mean for feminism, right? Exactly. Before she takes action. And the other thing is that you know what. I'm not sure if it would be a terrible thing if men were thinking about that all the time. And that sounds terrible, but let me explain for a second, which is that I—the Me Too movement has started a lot of conversations, one that I've had consistently with with my—with, like, good, well-meaning male allies is trying to explain to them the ways that um, sexual violence has an impact on women's everyday lives, Mm -hmm. like, just all the time. Thinking about, like, where you park your car, where you go for a run, like, all of that. Those are the two main ones for me. Um, it, this gives men just a tiny little insight into what that might be like if you had to worry about it all the time. Right. No, exactly. I, I, did, this, <laughs> um, I did this talk with Lorena um, uh, the other day on over the weekend, and a woman from the Middle East uh, who was about Lorena's age stood up and said, you know— I was living in uh, in the Middle East at the time, and we heard about your story, and I said to my husband, you know, Lord, I just evoked what you did to my husband, and for the first time, you know, he was abusive to me, and for the first time, he looked a little bit scared of, of, of me. And so it is, like, women walk around with that fear all the time, and for a moment during this eight-day trial that kind of transfixed the world, uh, men felt a little, bit, a little bit afraid, too, and that's sort of a—that is— you know, as kind of horrible as the crime is, you don't discount it. That is something of an equalizer um, to understand what it's like to walk around and constantly be sort of afraid and thinking about, you know, will I get assaulted? And that's not to, yeah, I mean. And assaulted in this most intimate way, mm-hmm. too. Because right. I've had a conversation with a guy who's like, well, I worry about my safety all the time. You know, like I've lived in bad neighborhoods and I'm worried about getting mugged. And I'm like, yeah, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> It's not. I've been mugged, actually, just by happenstance. I happen to have been mugged, and I also have had experienced sexual assault. Let me tell you, <laughs> right? Like there is an order of magnitude difference that's only made clear if you're if you mention something like cutting off a man's penis. 
Right. And they're like, oh. Right. Right. And and to get back to the penis, because mm-hmm. that is what everyone yes. was interested in, um, the attachment of it became this huge story, too. Like, that was something everyone followed. Yeah. And the, and the New York Times and Washington Post and others who were, like, skittish about covering the missing penis did, like, huge stories into this medical you know, miracle of the this urologist and a plastic surgeon who in nine and a half hours of surgery, of course, they found the penis in a field. They rushed it to the hospital in a big box hot dog, uh, big bite hot dog <laughs> box from 7-Eleven and on ice. And they reattached it. And these surgeons became superstars. Of course, they said that, you know, we became immensely famous for this procedure that no one else needed after that. So it, <laughs> so they didn't have a lot of business coming in from that. And they also never got paid. So they, was like, they were like, great, we're really, f- nobody's keeping our number on their refrigerator, you know, just in case this happens to them. <laughs> Which goes to show, like, again, to this, this moment of awareness about the possibility of sexual violence didn't actually, like, stick with anyone. Right. But in speaking of sticking with people, so I, of course— People need to read your actual story. But I wonder if you could kind of, you know, thumbnail for us, like the experience of going to to meet her and and hearing from her when the only voice that we've heard of con- from consistently since the event is actually her husband, who, again, Howard Stern, uh, porn. Uh, he's, you know, he was a kind of made this his claim to fame. Mm-hmm. And she did not. Yeah, I mean, just thinking about the way they've lived their lives for the past 26 years, I think, says a lot. So Lorena has done some press, but she's mostly lived a pretty quiet life in Manassas. She stayed in the town where it happened. Um, she ended, she's ended. she been with the same man for the past 20 years. They have a 13-year-old daughter. She, you know, very much does your normal suburban mom things, volunteering on her daughter's volleyball team with her Girl Scouts. She continued to do nails and hair, and she has, for the past two decades, volunteered with uh, domestic violence, sexual assault victims. Um, She has her own foundation, and she's hoping to open a shelter there um, in Manassas. So John, meanwhile, as you mentioned, went on to do porn. He got a penis enlargement that went badly on air in a in a porn called Franken Penis. He um, was a regular on the Howard Stern show. But more importantly, he went on to get arrested and convicted of violence against women several more times, um, including a really a really chilling uh, incident in which he was accused of tying up his girlfriend at the time to their to their bed at a Niagara Falls apartment and he taking just just raping her and sodomizing her for several days until she had to play dead and he wrapped her in a blanket to dispose of the body and that is how she got away so he got convicted and spent time in prison for that he's denied all these charges to me but um but just sort of looking at the way the two of them have lived their lives i think under scores how kind of wrong we got it to begin with to focus on his loss and not the abuse and terror that she that she went through before we wrap up i want to ask you to kind of look forward which is to say so having gone back and done this forensic examination of how this story was covered also having written the book you did which reflected uh, about hillary's treatment in the media you, you did some personal reflection about that have you thought about like what kinds of things you might 
what might change for you moving forward in the way that you think about stories having to do with gender? Mm, that's a really good question. Um, I mean, certainly looking at Lorena changed a lot for me. And one of the things that activists at the time told me was that women journalists often wanted to cover the abuse angle, but they said that they would bring that to their editors who are usually men and said, no one's interested in that. Like, let's do another story about like how they reattach the penis or let's do another story about whether it works. You know, it was like, so in a way it did make me think about who's telling the stories and who's making those coverage decisions and how much it changes the way we see things. So like, for instance, the men, the men who were having these debates and telling us what to think of John and Lorena Bobbitt were Charlie Rose and Matt Lauer and Al Franken on Saturday Night Live and Howard Stern and Geraldo really made a name for himself chasing down Lorena. And so... What, Bill O'Reilly didn't have an opinion? <laughs> he probably I mean, did. He yeah. would throw him in there. Um, but but yeah. so it's like, you know, it, it has definitely uh, made me think about, about who controls the news and how these stories look completely different when there is more diversity, when there are different voices in newsrooms at every level saying, wait, shouldn't we look at this other, this other angle, this other thing? And I think you can apply that to, to Hillary and Monica Lewinsky and a lot of these things that we kind of thought we all knew, um, I don't know if that yeah. answers your question. <laughs> I think it's a great answer to my Thanks. question. And it makes me also think about how just my responsibility as a storyteller, as a person in this, you know, configuration, mm -hmm. that how easy it is to become a part of that apparatus that tells the stories and to not think twice about it. Right. You know, like to not be like, uh, no, you're wrong, Mr. Editor. We should do this story about the abuse angle. Like, it becomes conventional wisdom or to just, oh, okay, yes, that more interesting story would be the one about the penis. And I, I'm grateful <laughs> that I get to make a lot of my own calls these days, mm -hmm. but um, we do just need more. It's, it's, again, not just who tells the stories and not just who reports the stories. It's who makes the decisions. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Absolutely. And you mentioned, like, like I, I obviously this was— the Bobbitt situation happened at the dawn of the 24-hour news cycle with all these daytime talk shows and Inside Edition and CNN, but it was nothing like Twitter and the kind of groupthink that can take hold now. So you can just imagine this narrative taking hold very quickly and being very it being very difficult to actually change the change the conversation when you think, oh, that's everybody's made up their mind about this. I mean, one thing I hope that these stories do in general for people is not just help, help reporters think about their own place and, and, and think critically about their own coverage, but like readers too, right? Yeah. Yes. But Jordan Peele, who obviously won an Oscar for Get Out and has, you know, tells stories of marginalized people, told me that in the Lorena story, he saw there there being three characters. There's John, Lorena, and there's us. There's uh, And he didn't mm. mean the media. He meant us as a society. What did we do with the information we had? Actually, we had all that footage. All the cameras were in the courtroom when Lorena took the stand and talked about being raped and when a string of witnesses supported her and said they'd seen bruises. All of that actually was available to us. So I thought it was a really poignant thing to think about, that the third character in all of these things is always us. Thank you so much, Amy. Thank you. So good to talk to you. Good to talk to you. I like this arc of your work. I have a feeling we'll have you back. I love that. Thanks a lot. 
And that is it for the show. My husband, John, doesn't always listen to this show. But I'm going to create an Easter egg just for him. John, if you're listening, I love you so much. And I love you more every day. And you showed me how to love myself. And with that, I implore all of you, love yourselves, take care of yourselves. And that's really going to help you love someone else. Happy Valentine's Day. Hey, have you heard the Virginia Lottery has a new Willy Wonka Golden Ticket Scratcher that has a top prize of $100,000? Tell that to my automated Golden Ticket Scratcher apparatus. You simply put the ticket in here, and the machine scratches it for you. And while we wait, we can play the Willy Wonka Golden Ticket online game with a top prize of $1 million. Just visit VALottery.com or use the lottery app. That's one impressive scratcher apparatus. Use it whenever. What's mine is yours. But hands off the scratcher. That Willy Wonka Golden Ticket is all mine. Sofas, recliners, love seats, everything is better in leather. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley, where bold meets durable. And wait a minute, who's been finger painting on the couch again? That's okay, leather is easy to clean. The new leather collection at Ashley is built with the durability you need for the whole family. Yes, pets too. Luxury is meant to be livable. Shop chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home.